Welcome to the Pretty Intense Podcast. If you'd take a second and hit the subscribe button, I would really appreciate it. Today on the show is uh, Robert Gilbert. This is his second appearance now, but after he came on last time, I just there's just so many aspects that we needed to cover still. So we actually started talking about stem cells, exosomes, PRP, and <laughs> anti-aging things, which then led into a, a very quick high-level understanding of biogeometry, which is one of the things that he teaches. And we also delved into what I really wanted to talk to him about, which was Rosicrucianism. So he goes into the history of it and where it came from and really covered such a wide base of the integrity of it and what what it is to be in the practice. When we go into these practices and learn beyond where we're at, we're really just trying to figure out how can we just be happier more of the time? How can we have more joy in our life? How can we understand not only ourselves, but others better? Why it is so needed right now and what our potential really is as human beings and the world that we live in. If you've been following me a while, you know that I've been drinking AG1 all year, no matter where I go or what I do, if I'm at the racetrack, if I'm in Europe for six weeks, no matter what, I'm drinking AG1 every single morning. When I started drinking AG1 daily, what I noticed was that my gut health improved. I could eat so many different foods without it bothering me. My skin has gotten better. My hair is healthier. So many functions that everybody wants to get better got better. It's so awesome. And I've been bragging about it so much that my friends and my family have also started taking it and they love it as well. AG1 is the supplement that I trust to support my body's daily needs. And that's why we have been partners for so long. If you want to take ownership of your health, it starts with AG1. Try AG1 and get a free one-year supply of vitamin D3 K2 plus five free AG1 travel packs with your first purchase. Go to drinkag1.com slash pretty intense. That's drinkag1.com slash pretty intense. Check it out. How have you been? I've been great. Uh, Things have been very exciting. We're currently working on bringing Dr. Ibrahim Karim, the founder of Biogeometry, back to North America for the first time in many years to give presentations on his latest research and uh, a lot of projects going on. Oh, that's a big deal. That reminds me when I was in in Europe this summer, I spent part of the trip with one of my girlfriends who loves to learn new spiritual practices of all kinds. But one of them that she started doing was biogeometry. Oh, fantastic. Your course on biogeometry. And so she had the book and she was going through the level one and we did some biofeedback stuff for a couple of people. And I found it super cool and super fascinating. So that's pretty exciting that doctor, isn't it Dr. Kareem? Yes. Mm-hmm. Yeah. That he is coming to the States. Yes. Uh, he's going to be coming in March to present uh, just a short presentation at the Gaia conference in Boulder, but uh, then we're having him for a evening public presentation in before that in March, and then followed by a three-day intensive with new information he hasn't uh, given out before uh, for people that have been trained in biogeometry, and we're expecting people from all, all over the world to come here to Las Vegas for that, so we're really excited about it. What level do you have to be at to be able to be a part of his event? You'll need to have completed the foundation and advanced trainings, Mm. which can both be done online. Okay. Uh, 
before that time in March. How old is he now? I'm not sure. I think he must be in his later 70s, but I'm I'm not certain. Later 70s or 322. We're not really <laughs> sure. You know? Yeah, he's an old soul, so. Didn't people used to live a really, really, really long time, according to old scripture? According to some old scriptures, yeah, the people lived a very long time. Even some of the modern Taoists say that, uh, you know, they have relatives who are like 140. So, you know, apparently it's quite possible. Do you think that that's true, that they lived that old? Uh, I think it's certainly true for the Taoists uh, today that they they live to these well over 100 ages using their Taoist internal alchemy. In the ancient world, I certainly think many things were possible according to what's often referred to as the secret doctrine based on Blavatsky's work, like the ancient knowledge. Uh, there are ways in earlier times when people's internal energy configuration in the body was quite different than today uh, for people to have expanded lifetimes. And mm -hmm. I've actually been doing research recently with uh, the latest developments in stem cell, exosomes, these types of things, which is developing very quickly. And the public doesn't really know everything that's happening with it, but it's absolutely amazing what's being done with the stem cell derived technology. And I think it's going to lead to uh, a real revolution in healthcare and particularly in longevity. So just recently, myself and the director of the Veska Institute, Jennifer Barnes, went to a clinic in Utah which does mm -hmm. the, one of the most comprehensive full body stem cell rejuvenation things in the world. It previously been covered by Ben Greenfield oh, yeah. and uh, yeah. uh, by the fellow that does the Bulletproof podcast and these things, they've done it. Dave. And, and Dave did it like uh, three times. Yeah, I went down to Costa Rica with Dave and did stem cells um, oh, earlier okay. this year. So I've done exosomes, I've done stem cells. They were not mine though. So I really, I, I didn't think we'd get in this little spot we're in, but I'm so fascinated what you have learned about this. Well, it seems that, you know, it's kind of the wild west in the US, The uh, yeah. although the FDA, FDA is somewhat controlling with it. There is a lot of innovation being done by different researchers. And they have very, very different approaches. So one of the things hard to get information on, you kind of have to do your own research and follow up with people. I don't know any textual sources that go into it, is the different approaches that different clinics are taking. And uh, they can have very different viewpoints on how to approach this kind of thing. Mm -hmm. But again, the one that we just did in Utah is supposed to be one of the most comprehensive in the world where you get every joint in the body injected as well as cosmetic and sexual injections. It's mm -hmm. supposed to be over 100 injections. And you have to be under IV sedation to do it because it takes a prolonged yeah. period of time. But, you know, they've had remarkable results. Again, Dave's done that particular one uh, three times himself already. Mm -hmm. And I just found out yesterday meeting with a stem cell clinic here in Las Vegas that they've been working on a method where using a modification of CPAP machines not for how CPAP machines are normally used, but to be able to deliver various types of pharmaceuticals or things directly into the lungs, that they found that they can rejuvenate lung tissue. So people with like COPD, long-term lung damage, these types of things are getting reversals 
from getting the exosomes put through the CPAP machine directly into the lungs themselves. Mm-hmm. And uh, it's just fascinating to see everything that's going on with the field. Gosh, yeah, yeah. I've been, I work with various different companies that develop devices that do like the highest grade PRP, which is another yes. sort of aspect. Yes. They usually say to, to pair PRP and stem cells together a lot of times when they're uh-huh. doing joints and orthopedic-like injections, as well as another company that I work with that does more cosmetic-like procedures with equipment. They use like the highest grade way of extracting the PRP. Another, oh, that's the exosome. Sorry, that's the PRP. The other one is exosomes because there's uh-huh. a certain amount of bioavailability that the exosomes can have. And there are many companies that actually don't have really any viable exosomes in the product. And so this is sort of like a very high level certification that the exosomes are, that there's a high amount of available exosomes to actually be delivered. So, wow. Do you think that the ancients had this sort of technology or is this sort of modern day humans that are coming up with new ways of longevity? I think this is a, a modern development because we're so based today on physical and chemical analysis. Mm-hmm. But in ancient times, it was much more based on energetic analysis. Mm-hmm. And so they would be using methods that I'm sure if we studied them today in our modern methodology, we would see that what's happening is that their energetic methods are simply a different route to be able to activate the stem cells and exosomes and these different types of natural substances in the body. So I was very impressed with the book uh, that is called The Spark in the Machine, uh, in which a person did quite a bit of research uh, that uh, in this particular text, they describe how you can find a very clean relationship, a very clear relationship between the acupuncture points in the body and the branching points for stem cell differentiation in the body and basically makes the uh, the statement that the acupuncture meridian system and the acupuncture point system are actually the controllers for all stem cell activity in the body and actually is what gives rise to the differentiated body parts that we have mm-hmm. which i find very fascinating and similarly a, a conclusion very close to that has been reached by my friend, Dr. Jerry Tennant, who developed uh, the series of books on healing as voltage. Mm. And in his work in Dallas, he's also come to the conclusion that the meridian system is a, a master controller of all of the voltage gates in the human body that sure. lead to all the rejuvenation and regeneration. And that would also mm. then apply, although that's not his focus on stem cells and things of that kind. So I think the thing we're going to be finding in the very near future is an incredible overlap between these more ancient sciences like the Taoist knowledge of internal alchemy and the human internal energy system with the meridians, acupuncture points, etc., and what we found through empirical discoveries in the last 30 years having to do with the activation and direction of stem cells, exosomes, injection of PRP, and things of that kind. 
Wow. Oh, another thing that just came to mind when you said that is that one of these companies I work with that does not only PRP, but stem cells as well. And they do like the sort of threading har- to harvest the stem cells from the bone, from inside the bone. And we were talking about where you get them from or where you get the stem cells from. And uh, there is a very big difference between different parts of the body and the quality or the composition of the stem cells Uh and that you take it from basically like lower back on the top of the hip there. And that's the best place to take the, take stem cells from not sort of like the arm or the thigh or the anything anywhere else, but like, but back of the hip. Isn't that fascinating? That's absolutely fascinating. I hadn't heard that before that the back of the hip has the best stem cells to harvest in the body. That's quite, that's quite amazing. You know, the whole stem cell, revolution in the U.S. got catalyzed as they were able to move from fetally derived stem cells to using umbilical cord derived. And mm-hmm. I understand that there's much more advanced work being done and permitted in Europe than in the U.S. today having to do with much of this technology and mm-hmm. how they're able to differentiate the stem cells and come up with the highest quality stem cells to inject into the body. Mm-hmm. So I think that that's one of the cutting edges of this whole field right now is to get more clarity about the different quality types of stem cells, exosomes, mm-hmm. things of this kind, mm-hmm. uh, which I think is going to add a tremendous amount to the field. It's mm-hmm. one of those things that when you see what's actually happening with people who are getting some of these treatments that the general public knows nothing about, that it's just absolutely revolutionary. Well, Look at Dave. I mean, we're talking about Dave. It's Dave Asprey. If you look back at old videos and pictures of him to where he is now, it's really amazing. And and this is only just this is just sort of anecdotal in my life. But people are like, wow, you look great. Like, what are you doing? And I'm like, (laughs) I guess I got to give credit to the stem cells and the exosomes and all the things. Um, So I think because I've been doing it probably long enough for it to have sort of at least a wave of an effect after a year, year and a half that maybe it's really working. I I really do think that that's probably the case. You do look very radiant. And uh, I, I do believe that the stem cell technology is one of the most powerful things that we can can use today for regeneration. I really want to talk about the Rosicrucian order and the Rosicrucianism and and that whole I I I want to I I think we could take another moment with biogeometry and just sort of touch on that because of the event that you have coming and and also just because we're talking so much about stem cells and and exosomes and 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 the way that the body is informed to heal or rejuvenate. So maybe go into sort of like a little bit of a overview of of biogeometry and like what people would learn and uh-huh. what 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 it actually is cuz just as sort of my experience with my friend who's taking the course is that that you know, we're looking through the book and doing the biofeedback with for someone to figure out what areas of the body they need help. And there are unique, very interesting symbols that correlate with all the different parts and aspects of the body and healing. And so I found that incredibly fascinating. Then, of course, sent the pictures to the people that we did it for, for them to look over themselves to trace with their eyes as well as where and have on them. 
So that's, again, just my own small experience with it, um, just to kind of give people a taste of and also confuse them a little to make them curious, like, <laughs> what the hell are you talking about? So um, I'd love to hear from your perspective what the overview of biogeometry and learning about it looks like. Great. Thank you. So I first met uh, Dr. Kareem around the year 2000 when he began to come to the United States to teach some courses in Florida. And I was absolutely amazed by what he was doing and what he had developed. He really had rediscovered from a modern perspective many of the lost secrets of the ancient Egyptian temple science. He will often refer to biogeometry as being nature's own design language of shape, sound, color, motion, angle, proportion. The way that all of these natural qualities actually control and direct the life forces in every living being on the planet. And as an architect, what he's uh, been able to develop is an understanding of the way that shape information is able to generate vibrational forces that affect living beings at both consciousness and energy levels. And he's developed this very, very far with very original research. One aspect of this is what you were describing as the types of forms or shapes that we're using. And one aspect of this is what's called biogeometrical shapes. So something like a, what we refer to as a 45 degree emitter, a, a backing of a certain length with two arms coming off of a certain length at a 45 degree angle will create a concentration of a specific vibrational power between them that we refer to in biogeometry as the BG3 which is essentially a concentration of the universal harmonizing force. Now, this is not something that's well understood in many different traditions. Many traditions focus on polarity energies like yin and yang in Chinese medicine. And the way that we balance the two polarities by adding the opposite polarity if you have too much of the other polarity. So if a system's too cold, you add some warmth to it, that type of thing. But there's actually a universal harmonizing force that restores everything to its balance point, restores it to the center. It actually activates the center of all biological functions and all systems. It's an amazing discovery by Dr. Kareem. And, you know, again, he's very clear about the fact, you know, he didn't invent it. This is something that nature uses all the time, but he's simply been able to clarify through his research discoveries and what he finds for these different shapes, sounds, colors, motions that are able to generate this particular force for a practical application. Then he was able to, using our radiesthesia methods derived from the French research of the early 1900s, which itself was derived from the Egyptian knowledge and application of vibrational science and vibrational testing from thousands of years ago, Radiesthesia is the ability to detect subtle radiations or subtle vibrations. And so using the radiesthesia methods that we teach in biogeometry, Dr. Kareem was able to discover the actual movement pattern of energy in the human body that generates specific biological activities. So, for example, the way that energy moves inside a person's liver maybe one of, uh, this isn't the actual number, let's say a dozen different energy movement patterns. Every one of those energy movement patterns generates a specific biological activity. Mm -hmm. And so 
basically we have the concept of energy as a, a proteus it is the the prima materia it is the original source energy behind everything just like stem cells can become anything right. energy can become any anything right and so just as the stem cells get programmed in the body by particular triggers to become certain things yeah. again one of the things that's that's discussed in the spark in the machine book that's so fascinating so the functions of the organs and systems in the body is actually uh, created by the way that the energy moves in a specific energy movement pattern. So okay. one of the first things we learn in biogeometry is not to think of shapes as some type of thinnest static external form, but mm. rather to think of them as dynamic energy movement patterns. Mm. And so it's the dynamic energy movement that creates the effect. So the shape is like a circuit that okay. the energy is moving dynamically inside of. And so all these biosignatures are simply flattened two-dimensional images of an original three-dimensional energy movement pattern that Dr. Kareem was able to trace out using radiesthesia and to then create the mapping of hundreds of different, what he calls biosignatures, mm -hmm. these energy movement patterns in the body that create biological effects. Mm -hmm. And the ones he's actually published many of these biosignatures in his book on biosignatures. Uh, however, in the classes that we teach, we're able to go much further and we're able to teach people how to energetically test any person for which biosignatures they need at a particular time to help mm -hmm. reinforce that energy movement pattern in the body that creates that effect. Mm -hmm. And also how to uh, be able to apply the biosignatures in a variety of other ways. Oh. But that's only one small part of the training. There's so much to it in understanding the actual science of shape, sound, color, motion uh, that can be practically applied, whether it's for the human being or in any type of design work. Because a lot of the work that we do is balancing the energy in homes, offices, etc., mm -hmm. in a very different approach than is done by most other traditions. Because we have the ability, and we teach people themselves to be able, for the rest of their lives, directly detect all these energy qualities, whether it's in their body or another person or in a location, again, we make no medical claims for it, but it is something that is absolutely remarkable. And so we offer both a foundation training that gives people all the fundamental skills that uh, currently is being done as an online class. It takes place as something where people have the material for around five weeks. And after the first couple of weeks with the material, we start having once uh, a week uh, meetings for about four hours where we can assist people with any questions they have, any issues with doing the hands-on testing and applications. And so there's three meetings and successive weeks for that. And that's the foundation training. And then there's an advanced training that's run along the same lines. And so in the question you had before, to be able to work with Dr. Kareem when he comes on this extremely rare uh, trip to the United States next March, we're still working on the exact dates. We know it will be in early March and it will most likely be in Las Vegas. There will be a, a public week uh, or public evening where Dr. Kareem will present for people who have not taken the advanced training, who want to see him and hear from him live. But then there's going to be a three-day intensive where he releases new information because currently we have the foundation and advanced training. After you do both of those online, you can work with him directly. And the 
the new material that's coming out, if people want to get a sense of it, it's extremely deep, having to do with how energy works through space and time and can then be practically applied in ways that are really mind-blowing. It was recently published by Dr. Kareem in his book called Hidden Reality that was published recently and is available on Amazon. Uh, it is a remarkable text. But if people want to start learning about his work, in addition to what's on the internet, I have videos about it on YouTube. He has some videos. And also there's his book that's Back to a Future for Mankind, which is his introductory book on biogeometry, which is quite remarkable. In addition to the new book, which is extremely advanced, called Hidden Reality. But uh, when he comes in March to Las Vegas, and I'm so grateful to be able to sponsor him for that, myself and my team here, that uh, he's going to be offering not only new techniques and new concepts, but also new tools. Uh, the work is developing very, very quickly. So to get a chance to work with him directly in North America is going to be a very rare opportunity and really excited about it. What is the most extreme way that you could experience the highest use of it? If you were to like, have you, do you have any stories? Is there anything where you can share what sort of what this technology, what this, uh, what this knowledge can do for someone? Yes. The, the challenge of this <clears throat> is following our principle of not making any medical claims, <laughs> of uh, which, which is very, very challenging. Get that box is <laughs> smart. <laughs> but uh, again, the possibly use... what could be done. <laughs> well, I, I'll just give you an example. Uh, to avoid the medical claims issue that uh, of what happened for me. And so I had had a couple of very severe car accidents uh, before I met Dr. Kareem. And one was extremely severe. The combined force of the two cars impacting head on, including the car that I was in, the combined force of impact was around 160 miles an hour and uh, had a lot of damage to my neck and my spine. And I'd done a lot to, to work on it, but it still was affecting my quality of life extremely dramatically mm -hmm. and was a, a major issue for me. Mm -hmm. And so when I met with Dr. Kareem for the first time in Florida, one thing that he did is he had just had people come up and he would test them for what biosignatures they needed. And he would engrave the correct biosignature pattern on a piece of metal mm -hmm. that you could wear like a medallion. Mm-hmm. Like today, you can buy biosignature medallions that don't have all the biosignatures on them because there's a huge number, but have like mm -hmm. a, a set of some of the most important ones that everyone needs. My friend had a necklace that had a, a one symbol. It was a it was a symbol of sorts, and she wore it. That was probably they have some biosignature pendants that are of a one specific biosignature mm -hmm. that does a mm -hmm. precise thing, and then right. they have what we call the biosignature medallion, which has many different biosignatures on it to get their composite effects at the same time. Although again, there's so many biosignatures doesn't have all the biosignatures. They're yeah. ones that everyone tends to need. I'd be wearing one like this big. It'd be like a... <laughs> Dr. Kareem has made yeah, some giant plate. ones before that he's uh, like, I'm not as big as like a human body <laughs> that he's like shown before in a, in a TV show that he did from Egypt years ago, these kinds of things. But mm -hmm. uh, what he did was he was able to find for me uh, particular biosignatures that I needed for my my neck and my spine. And he just engraved it on this thing for, for me to wear. Mm -hmm. And it really had an such an incredible effect for me. It really gave me my life back. Wow. I was like, well, this is unbelievable that a particular 
again, people will just think of it as like some external shape, but it's an energy movement pattern that works in resonance to activate that, that movement pattern in the human body. And it was so dramatic, the effect I got from it, that I began to go to every course he taught anywhere that I could get to. And I was so dedicated to the work, and I literally transcribed all of his talks word for word, and then I reorganized it into a, a more comprehensive uh, linear system that uh, he invited me three years later to be the first person outside of Egypt to teach his work publicly. And so that's kind of how things developed there. But it was like, that's an example of what's possible with this. Again, your mileage may vary. We don't make any claims for what the effects of any of this will be. But uh, this has happened for a lot of people. Hmm. And in addition to that, I've, I've had a lot of people get the results from having their home and offices balanced so that the detrimental vibrational effects of all the things we're surrounded by in our environment today get modified and harmonized by connecting it to this universal harmonizing energy or vibratory force. Mm -hmm. We've gotten all kinds of remarkable testimonials about the changes of people's lives and wow. things of this kind. Uh, again, not making any medical claims. One of the first stories I heard from someone I started teaching things publicly was that they had a friend who had had a motorcycle accident and they were in a coma and they went to go see them and they were hooked up to all this different medical equipment. Well, the medical equipment is monitoring them and these types of things, but anything that's electrical that's plugged into the wall has a very specific vibrational quality that's known technically as the vertical wave of negative green. It's too complex to go into here, but it's part of what we teach people about the different vibrational qualities and biological effects. Mm -hmm. And so the person did exactly what I taught them to do in the class, which is put specific biogeometric forms on all of the electronic equipment in the space to take off the vibrational quality of the vertical negative green coming from the electrical circuits and to replace it with this harmonizing energetic force. And the person said in the class at the moment they put the last correction on the last <clears throat> piece of electronic equipment that was surrounding their friend, that at that moment, their friend came out of the coma. And so the theoretical basis behind that, again, not making any medical claims, just theory, is that by taking off the suppressive effect of the electromagnetic blanketing energies, the person was able to have their own life forces recover to the point that they could come back into consciousness. I have three different EMF reducers in my house spread out because they have a range. And that's one of the things that I'm sensitive to is fields and energy. I don't feel people's emotions too much. I'm aware of them. <laughs> God, I don't feel them. I'm aware of them, but I feel frequency uh, very much so. So is that something that, that would help reduce that negative green negative, uh, that negative, what do you call it? What's the, the technical name of it is negative green because on a particular way of charting the complete spectrum of the energies in a circular format, it's diametrically opposite positive green, or what we think of as the green color quality in the qualitative scale of energies. So they, the, the French referred to it in the early 1900s as negative green, and they said that it was actually known and used by and counteracted by hmm. the ancient Egyptians, the Chinese, Easter Island. They gave all types of examples of how they worked with this energetic quality because it can be used beneficially, but in the way it appears in like electromagnetic circuits, it's quite harmful. So mm. the good thing about biogeometry is it does have its own tool line that you could use for balancing these effects. 
But in addition to that, it's not just a matter of selling you another tool out of many different tools on the market. What we do in the biogeometry training is we teach people how to, for the rest of their lives, test for themselves or others the specific vibrational qualities coming from any person, place, or thing. And then when you place a vibrational tool, whether from biogeometry or from any other source, onto the problem area, you can now test and know whether it's a, it's actually transforming the quality of energy or not. Because there's many good vibrational tools on the market today, and there's many that do absolutely nothing, and there's quite a few that actually increase the toxic energy. And sometimes when I talk to the people selling those tools, they just like say, oh, hold this, you can feel the energy. And I'm like, yeah, I can feel the energy, but that energy is not a beneficial energy, but the people making it don't know how to test and differentiate energy qualities. So one of the things that's been a huge breakthrough with the biogeometry is we can teach anybody how to be able to directly detect the energetic quality coming from anything. So when you actually do, like let's say a feng shui correction to a space, one thing that's been discovered is that I love feng shui, it's a great system, but that if you try to apply the stuff that was done a couple thousand years ago in non-electromagnetic environments, and you think that's going to correct the electromagnetic energy in the space, we can show you that it doesn't. But again, this is something that requires more discussion to really get into the technical aspects of it because it's a qualitative science and the quantitative aspect of the electromagnetic wave is still there because the the trick of this of what Dr. Kareem had always explained to people when he did things like balance the electromagnetic fields for the whole city of Hamburg, Switzerland back around 2003. That's a baller move. <laughs> incredible work that he's done. He was able to describe the way that, you know, if, if I was blocking the electromagnetic circuit, because people would like get an EMF meter and say, oh, no, the EMF is still here. Look on the, the meter. He says, yes, the EMF is still here, because if I blocked the EMF, none of your communication devices or energy devices would be working, and you wouldn't allow me to do that. We had to sever the Gordian knot, like with Alexander the Great, to find a lateral thinking solution to this which still has the electromagnetic circuits in place because otherwise our technology won't work, but to change the energetic quality of them so that the effect on the human mind and body mm -hmm. is no longer destructive, but may even be beneficial because it is actually increasing the broadcast of this harmonizing, mm -hmm. universal harmonizing wave. Mm -hmm. And so that's why we have to train people in biogeometry to think in a completely different way about it, that we're going to be testing and transmuting the quality of energy on the wave and it's not a matter of changing the quantitative aspect of the wave because we wouldn't be allowed to change that so there's a there's quite a bit in the training about how to do these things on a practical level the rosicrucian order this is something that came across in an interview after an interview it was with Rhonda Byrne um, from the secret. And she started talking about it, like after we were done with the actual interview and I was fascinated and it wasn't part of the interview, but she sort of had sort of said, I can help you out and like put you in touch with someone. And anyway, I, I just was too busy to proceed with it, but it's still been in my mind and still been something very, I'm very curious about. And I've reached a point where I, I feel like I know a lot about myself. There's always more to learn, but I want, I want to be able to do magic basically. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Yeah. <laughs> and 
something tells me if I were to learn it, that I would now be able to practice what people would call magic and magic being real, but it's just sounds not real to people because that's the word we use for stuff we don't understand. So, so uh, I would really like you to get slightly granular about the process and, and, and what it takes. And, and, and even like, I think we could start with the history of it mm-hmm. and, you know, it's been, it's known as like the path of the mystics. Is this correct? Yes. Uh, so let me just, uh, preface what I'm going to say by saying, this is my personal perspective. This is my experience and other people may see this a bit differently. I have my own particular approach to it. So take what I say with as many grains of salt as you like. But if you look at it historically, the idea of the Rosicrucians began around the early 1600s, as far as the public is concerned, Mm -hmm. where certain books began to be published in Central Europe that talked about the existence of a Rosicrucian order of mystics, of adepts who were capable of all kinds of remarkable things and doing it within the context of the Christian tradition. Now, we need to state that because at that point, particularly then, you know, Europe was entirely Christian, other than, you know, the small groups of Islamic and Jewish, but, you know, the control of Europe was completely Christian tradition. And so often we think about adepts with highly advanced skills, like even today, we tend to think about them as being Eastern adepts, like certain masters from India or China Mm -hmm. or something like that. The idea that there were living amongst us, these incredibly advanced mystics with great powers, was something that led to a tremendous popular movement in Central Europe in the 1600s of interest in what is the Rosicrucian tradition? How do you find these great hidden masters? What can you learn from them? What is their method? These kinds of things. And so... This then led to, in time, the development of public Rosicrucian organizations. Okay. Now, in the creation of public organizations, rather than what was happening behind the scenes, which I'll get to in just a moment with the Rosicrucians, is that to create these organizations, they needed to have some type of pattern to follow. And so one thing that happened that I personally think is a bit of a mixed bag is that it often would connect with uh, Freemasonry. And so uh, at the same time as this is happening, Freemasonry is undergoing its own revolution historically for what was known as operative Masons, which are the people that actually built the cathedrals. If you became a Freemason, let's say back in the 1400s, you became an apprentice to learn how to actually build cathedrals and things like that. You were an operative Mason. Okay. It was based on metaphysical principles, And you learned all kinds of amazing spiritual and energetic things that the public would never know. Uh, But you are being trained to be a a brick mason and to build buildings, a literal mason. But uh, particularly by the time we got to the 1700s, this had changed and operative masonry really was dying out. And it became what is known today as speculative masonry. And so speculative masonry, which is what most of all Freemasonry today is, is where you join some fraternal organization and you go through a number of rituals and rites to get initiated into higher and higher grades in in, uh, 
linear Are they still degrees? Is it still like... Yeah, they're degrees, degrees, yeah. Like, is there 33 degrees? In, in some forms of masonry, there's 33 degrees, and some forms is over 90. There, there's various forms were developed. It's going to take a while. <laughs> yes, exactly. Or not this interview, but I'm saying like uh, to be a 90 degree mason. Oh boy. Yeah, but those forms, the 90, the 90 plus degree forms, are not very popular today. It's hard to find those forms. The 33 degree is the main one that 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 dominated. But the idea with this is that uh, you would join this organization and you would work your way through these grades, through these degrees over a period of years until you reach the highest level of initiation, et cetera. Mm -hmm. Now, I, I have to state my own bias up front that uh, I kind of follow the pathway of the, you know, the joke made by Woody Allen years ago, that I wouldn't want to join any organization that would have someone like me for a member. So my basic approach to this is I'm not really so much of an organization follower. Yeah. And I do think that's a bit of the the ethic of our age, that uh, as we develop public Rosicrucian organizations, many of them began to take on these types of Masonic organizational fabrics. That mm -hmm. <clears throat> that the challenge of it is people can get caught up in the working through the actual politics mm -hmm. of this organization of human beings mm -hmm. and. I have no interest in that whatsoever. I mean, mm -hmm. less than zero. So uh, it almost some... starts feeling like organized religion or something, where there's probably all rooted in a great start, and then man gets a hold of it, and politics come in, and money, and power, and and ego, and I'm a higher degree than you, and you have to do this, and that. Again, no appeal to me for that. And if people choose to to work within Masonic or Rosicrucian external organizations, that's fine. Now, in the United States, some of the largest organizations are quite old. Things like AMORC and Rosicrucian Fellowship, they're quite old at this point. People want to work in those frameworks, and that's what helps them to have something that is that clearly delineated and that you can work through with the external help of other people. Great, those forms still exist, and you can do that. Uh, that's not my, my orientation. And I'm not going to be teaching people about that. My orientation has always been toward what the Rosicrucian organization was originally. And that was, it wasn't part of an external physical organization. It was, as was discussed in the early text in the 1600s, it was a group of people that had direct spiritual connection to the beings behind the Rosicrucian tradition. So let's clarify for everybody right now. Something that's extremely fundamental, but not often spoken of. And uh, this is a definition coming from a person I learned a lot from, Dr. Samuel Sagan, a French medical doctor who later became a translator of Sanskrit texts into French uh, back in the 80s, who developed a school called the Clair Vision School that mm -hmm. I trained with in Sydney, Australia for a time. And he had this, he had many brilliant summarizations of esoteric realities. And one of Sagan's ideas with the Clair Vision School is that whenever we talk about a spiritual tradition, you're talking about a group of human beings with a group of non-physical spiritual beings that are working together for a particular goal, for a particular pathway. Now, as you drill down deeper into this, one of the things that you find that 
this group of spiritual beings behind that tradition. So there's a group of beings behind the Buddhist tradition, behind mm -hmm. the Taoist tradition, behind the Christian tradition, whatever it is. In some cases, there's overlaps. That gets a little complex. But that group of beings is working with human beings. And one of the things that's happening invisibly, if you're choosing to train in, let's say, the Buddhist system versus the Taoist versus the Christian, etc., is that the training systems are having the basic cause and effect result that what you're doing with your mind in these spiritual practices, what you're doing with your energy in the spiritual practices is structuring your energy body, structuring your subtle bodies into very literal geometric formations hmm. that are going to give you certain siddhas or powers. Hmm. And siddhas is the term coming from the Himalayan mm -hmm. tradition. And so the there's an infinite number of spiritual practices that we could do. And one of the things that's happened in recent times, I often refer to as our modern blessing and a curse, which is that we have access to more incredible, deep spiritual information than we've ever had in any other time in recorded human history. Like things that used to be highly secret, you can now buy the information about it for $16.95 in a paperback book. Like that's what happened in the Taoist internal alchemy traditions. So it's unbelievable. That's only happened in the last 40 years. Okay. So that's a great blessing that we get access to all this previously hidden information. The curse of it is that a lot of people don't have the, the contextual background to be able to differentiate and sort through the flood of information from all these sources, which sometimes comes out in a somewhat twisted uh, way that doesn't make it actually clear what the real thing is, mm -hmm. uh, to put all these fragments that have come out from all these traditions into some workable format that actually leads to a tangible result in the structuring of the subtle bodies and the core spiritual development of the person in a way that we can take through the gate of death and into the subsequent incarnations. That's really the key thing here. Hmm. So the Rosicrucian tradition really began as completely independent forms of initiation. And by independent, what I mean by that is that the person was an autonomous human being that did not have any other human being who was over them as a guru mm. or a director of that kind. The person was completely autonomous. Mm -hmm. And their connection for the initiation was literally straight above the head in the vertical axis of energy that runs from high above us, enters into the crown center, goes through the midline of the human body, out the perineum, down into the earth. There's many different energy flows and axes in the human body, but this is mm -hmm. the most important of all of them. And so many of the most advanced techniques have to do with learning not only how to activate areas of our own brain and consciousness to be able to be more conscious and to work through many things, mm -hmm. but also to be able to put our attention above the head and to be able to activate the centers above the head in subsequent stages. Mm -hmm. I have an online course about activating the stages above the head, which is called Connecting to Spiritual Realities. It's very hard to find information on that particular part of things. Mm -hmm. But again, this is part of the larger classical context. And so the Rosicrucians, in my view, the real Rosicrucianism, the original Rosicrucianism, isn't in any external physical organization. Again, if people want to create those and work within that and it helps them, God bless you. But I'm just saying that my yeah. particular prejudice 
is toward the original form where everyone is autonomous and free, okay. which is where we're going anyway. There's been a yeah. huge movement toward that in the last hundred years, yeah. uh, just historically. Yeah. Now we have millions and millions of people on a free spiritual path. We now have more people on the free spiritual path in most industrialized countries huh. than we have in any specific religious tradition. Wow. It's just, it's it's an incredible change in human history. And wow. so yeah. the Rosicrucian tradition is actually preparing for this back in the 1600s for that independent form of spiritual initiation. So one of the great teachers of this, an external teacher that actually came forward and began to teach uh, was Rudolf Steiner. Yep. And so Rudolf Steiner made the statement that, that all advanced spiritual initiation today, by and large, is actually independent initiation. People being able to connect directly to spirit and someone else on a similar path to you can be kind of an elder brother or sister on the path. They may have mm -hmm. gone farther than you, and mm -hmm. but they don't they don't tell you what to do. Mm -hmm. uh, that would be a, a violation of a person's spiritual freedom. You never get told what to do by some external authority figure. Mm. You have Example to understand being like what would be being told what to do to go like you, do a sacrifice or if you join any spiritual religion, any religion or many spiritual traditions. It's like a very crafted out thing. Okay, you've got to do this. You can't okay. do that. Mm -hmm. It's like all these rules and regulations about this is mm -hmm. how your path's going to run. Mm -hmm. Okay, yeah, sure. It could be just going to church at a certain time and then you do yes. this during the ceremony and you stand up and you kneel or you do that or you go here and you do this. And as opposed to your own, you're talking about your own sort of navigation naturally through, you know, what your intuition, energy, and even what the universe brings you is just sort of leading you on the path that's far more organic and it's led by you and you and you. Exactly. Because what you find very often is when when anybody teaches like, here's how you advance spiritually, then it's going to often come down to these are the things I found were useful for me. And in my particular form of internal structure, that's what makes sense to me and works for me. But mm -hmm. you may be giving that somewhat hardened or rigidified structure, you must do this, you can't do that type of thing to someone who doesn't have the same type of structure and may not have the same destiny. They may not be developing the same faculties in yeah. their consciousness and energy to do yeah. the things they're meant to do yeah. that you are. So that's why we can learn from a tremendous number of people. But it really comes down to a combination of contextual understanding. Now, if you're going to follow just like one external religion, and I'm, that's fine if that's what you choose to do, or one particular spiritual tradition, then you don't necessarily have to understand everything. And in many of those cases, they don't explain a lot to you. Mm -hmm. And sometimes they're even hostile to questions. I've seen that yeah. in many spiritual traditions. You start like asking to question this. <laughs> exactly. But again, I find that's not only true in certain religions. It's mm -hmm. very true in some modern spiritual traditions or <clears throat> groups as well. If you start yeah. questioning things, they don't, they're not very happy about it. And so the amigo. It's it's so much easier then for a person to just join a group that's going to tell them what to do, where there's an authority figure above them that says, do this, don't do that type of thing. You're giving your will over to them to a certain extent. Now, I don't want to overplay this. If people want to do this, that's fine. But you need to understand what's at stake when you make that choice, I think, is, is the key thing that's not being discussed today in metaphysical circles. Let's just be clear that there's, there's ramifications of the choice that you make. So Great. the ramification... The ramification of the choice that you make, if you're giving your power over to another human being that you're giving that authority of a guru to, 
is that you're going to be taking on whatever is their system. And if that's not the optimal thing for your structure or your purpose, then you're kind of caught into somebody else's trip. I so, was I was having a conversation about this just so people can kind of like hear from my perspective as an example. Like I was talking to somebody about the spiritual path, essentially, and really to know more about yourself, to find more happiness and joy, to get more into alignment, you know, just to enrich in your life. And I said, I'm pretty sure that because there's no path, you can't just tell someone, go do this, go do that. You can say what's been the most helpful for you. But I said, I'm pretty sure that for me, it feels like your interest in wanting to know yourself and know more and growing spiritually is that's that that's it that is the path and then you kind of let things sort of come to you or you get led to something but just wanting to know and then you're open to all the paths and all the ways that it could go you know it's not a book it's not a practice it's not a regiment it's like i just want to know myself and i want to know more about the world and how it works and i want to grow i want to evolve Yes. So uh, I want to be even handed with this. I totally agree with what you're saying. But to be even handed, I want to <clears throat> clarify that the advantage of following the classical method of I'm in a specific tradition. I'm going to be there the rest of my life. I'm going to follow one grade after another, one degree after another, whatever their system is. The advantage of it is what's often described by people that support these systems coming from a and I think it's an old Indian saying that, uh, you know, if you dig a lot of shallow holes, meaning if you look into a lot of different traditions, but you don't do much with them, then you'll never find water just digging a bunch of shallow holes. If you dig one hole and go deep, then you'll find the water, which is the actual spiritual essence and transformation you're looking for. Okay. So the, that's, that's the argument on that side, yeah. that particularly for people that don't have a, a good contextual understanding, if there's some person or group that they find trustworthy and that they resonate with, then following their directions for everything can potentially lead to going deep in one direction that leads to actually achieving quite a few things spiritually. So many people do achieve things on that type of path. Mm -hmm. But I'm just saying that's not that's not my path, but that is a path. So again, be aware that the benefit of it could be that you actually do achieve something because it's they've had time to figure it out and this path does this. Mm -hmm. uh, the downside is that they may not teach you absolutely essential things that you need to learn for your very different needed form of subtle body structure and the things that you're going to move toward in life. And they may have all types of embedded things within their social norms that aren't things that you want to be restricted by. So that's 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 one side of it. The other side of it is that on the independent path, the benefit of it is that you're able to understand the actual effect of any practice from any tradition. It doesn't mean you can't do the practices from different traditions. You can do practices from any tradition, but you have the challenge of the independent path is you have to have contextual understanding of what particular practices create what effects on the mind and the body. Mm. And they're doing that by structuring the subtle bodies in a particular way. Okay. And so the independent path requires a lot more investment of time and energy. 
to mm. be able to understand things mm. independently. Because mm. now you're not giving your power away to somebody else who you think understands more than you mm-hmm. and is going to guide you because they understand more than you do. Mm-hmm. You're bringing yourself up to the point that you have to understand more mm-hmm. to make informed decisions mm-hmm. that are going to literally affect your destiny. Mm. When you reach your destiny point sooner or later, whether you follow what the Buddhists would call skillful means and get there with the minimum of suffering and the least amount of time, or unskillful means where you learn through the school of hard knocks and get hit around a lot because you didn't figure it out correctly. But it does require you to really understand things contextually mm. to a deep level to make an informed decision. Yeah, yeah. I'm going to use a dumb example. This is like yeah. um, going on a cruise. And it's all set up for you. And you go to these stops and you might not like them all. You might like some of them. Or yes. you go, okay, I'm going to go to that area, but I'm going to plan it out. I'm going to find all the right spots, the right cities, the right hotels, the right uh, the right activities. And it's totally curated. It takes way more time than just signing up for the cruise that has all the stops set on it. And you might still have a good time on the cruise. But you're going to know that you are you you're going to be well informed when it comes to the one that you pick every stop. That's and my dumb may, example. Now that's a great example <clears throat> because then you might find that there's <clears throat> and this is very true when you're traveling. If you just stay on the major parts of the tourist travel route, you'll never see the most incredible hidden things that the locals know about, but that then are going to direct you to as that's a tourist moving through. So that deeper contextual understanding allows you to find the most critical things on that pilgrimage that you're you're going on. It makes it a pilgrimage rather than just an entertainment that doesn't lead to anything. So for me, I've always had an orientation toward that independent path. So it does require a certain level of spiritual maturity. It does require a lot more investment of time and energy. And you have to take the responsibility for the outcome. Before, you can put that responsibility on somebody else. It's like, oh, that... You know, they told me to do that and it didn't work out. It's their fault. But at a certain point of growing up as an adult, you get tired of blaming other people. Mm-hmm. And But to, to get to that point, you're no longer blaming other people. You got to take the responsibility onto yourself if things are not right. working out in your life. And that's certainly true when it comes to spiritual development. So bringing this all back to our main topic here of the Rosicrucian tradition, Although many people adapted Rosicrucianism into organizations where you could join and you could go through grades and this type of thing, and many people may benefit from that. Again, I think by and large, the movement today is for people to have independent forms of initiation. And that was very much set forth as a pattern by the Rosicrucian tradition back when it became public back in the early 1600s. So I do want to make this clear to people because I find it's very rarely made clear. When people talk about Rosicrucian tradition, like, oh, where is it? I want to join it. It's like, let me send in my membership. It's like, well, you can find somebody that's running a Rosicrucian organization, and you can do that, and you can become a member of something. But I, I just want to emphasize that from my perspective, that's fine if you do that. That's not the key thing. The key that thing is not Rosicrucianism. That's not what that. That's it, not what this is. It's not core Rosicrucianism because core okay. Rosicrucianism requires you to be independent. This is my perspective. Yes. Yeah. To directly connect to spirit. Not go through a human intermediary or right. give your power away to a human intermediary. And in that path, you will necessarily have to become extremely conscious of all kinds of non-physical realities that other people are not. Because to connect, when we talk about this as something literal, it's not metaphoric. You're literally connecting up the column of energy above the head to specific energy centers that give you the capacity to perceive 
and have a communication with non-physical beings and to perceive non-physical realities. Mm -hmm. Rudolf Steiner referred to this as clairvoyance as a kind of controlled psychosis. And so it may not even be that safer path for a person who has serious mental issues, people mm. who are psychotic or yeah. bipolar. That might not be a, sure. they need to like get stability in their earthly life before they try to tackle something like this. Mm -hmm. Because if you're perceiving non-physical things right now, but it's coming from a, a, a state that is yeah. bad brain chemicals, mm -hmm. uh, that may, you don't have the physical foundation to do this in a grounded and healthy way. Mm -hmm. So it requires being fairly well-grounded and well-adjusted to, mm -hmm. to take on this independent path. But we have to simply accept the fact, we have to just acknowledge the historical reality that the time we live in now is when millions and millions of people are voting with their feet to go this direction. It simply hasn't been clearly delineated, I don't think, in modern metaphysics. The the the, the choice here between the organizations, because within modern metaphysics, we still have all these different gurus and teachers and organizations. Mm -hmm. But the difference between that and the independent path, that's that's a whole thing. So the Rosicrucian tradition in its original form, that I believe in its true form, is all about a modern form of independent initiation. Now, that doesn't mean you're doing it by yourself, but it means that the authority that you're working with is not on the physical plane. Right. It is literally spiritual. Okay. And so this requires the ability to start perceiving. But again, using a great piece of terminology by Dr. Sagan from the Clear Vision School, he called packed thought forms. Because in our physical lives, in the physical body, we process thoughts through the machinery of the physical brain. But the human higher consciousness is not brain-oriented. In fact, there's even been brain research, like the work of Sir John Eccles, who won a uh, Nobel Prize for his brain research decades ago. And he said, I looked for the place that initiated the firing of neurons that created a thought in the human brain, and I found there wasn't any. It actually comes from a higher holographic field of energy around the human head that then interacts as a field of energy with the brain to initiate the firing of neurons. That halo in all the ancient photos. <laughs> it's exactly what it is. And this is someone who won the Nobel Prize for brain research saying this. So we have to get to the point then that we start working at the energy centers above the head quite mm -hmm. consciously. And that allows us to start working with packed thought forms. <clears throat> so the packed thought forms are essentially where it is the pure content of mind substance, of the thought substance itself. It can be transmitted in the form of images, in the form of sounds in the mm -hmm. form of direct internal kinesthetic knowing. Okay, but is this the clairs, a, basically? Is this the clairaudient, clairsentient, clair... Exactly. Okay, claircognizant. The key thing is that it doesn't have to get reduced from that direct perception, immediate knowing state into words. Because word thinking is extremely powerful on the physical plane. Mm -hmm. It's a type of digital thinking. It's mm -hmm. extremely binary. Mm -hmm. And so thinking in words is a lower form of thinking and communication. Mm -hmm. People who have done any type of Zen meditation, Vipassana, transcendental meditation, they'll understand what I'm talking about. Higher consciousness states are not based on thinking one word after another. Mm -hmm. It's not what they call the monkey mind chatter. So in the it East. like comes to you. It's like arrives as a 
pack thought is that that's the pack yes pack it does because you you don't have to actually take the linear time that you would hear to know the information it all arrives at the same time and it's like an awareness to something new or an idea <laughs> that's how it feels to me it's like it's not like somebody says the words this you're going to do this and exactly. feel like how about it's more like and it almost is paired with the it's a it's it's it also is like locks into almost like an embodiment as well there's it's a it's an actual experience on more levels than just the words and thinking it's like a whole full it's a full experience body mind soul the whole thing it's it becomes a knowing absolutely it's a type of immediate transmission yeah that leads to an immediate knowing and reception mm. so this is what they call things like transmissions like in the indian tradition like when the you're getting the shakti transmission it's an instantaneous transmission and so a pack thought form is the most condensed form of the direct knowing of that thing it gets transmitted in an instant so this is that eureka moment where you get the download in an instant and you get the whole thing. If you had to describe to somebody else the information you received in that moment, yeah. it could take you days of trying to unpack it one word after another. Yeah. And there's, you're still not going to be able to fully convey in the unpacked words, which take forever to get out. Totally. The direct experience. Totally. So to be able to receive the packed thought forms is essential to be able to have direct communication with non-physical beings and non-physical mm. realities, because that's how they communicate, beings that are not on yeah. the physical plane, and we're surrounded by them all the time. <laughs> this is something that is like one of the very weird things about the current state of humanity, that we're like, I often use the example that we're like fish in a, in a sea, that we're surrounded by water, but we don't know water exists. The water yeah. is this the spiritual world. We're embedded in the spiritual world. But if we don't have the eyes to see it, we haven't developed the internal organs of perception, we'll never know that we're surrounded by spiritual beings all the time that are conveying information to us. And those spiritual beings are of varying levels of reliability, just like <laughs> human beings are. And quality. <laughs> exactly. So you have to, just like you have to have some discernment with the company you keep on the physical plane, you have to have discernment of the company you keep in the non-physical world. It's not a naive, I'm just opening up to any old thing that wants to come in mm. and type of thing. It's like, you need to talk to the, the reliable beings. And there's different ways to differentiate that when we get in, that's a different topic. But that's a very important idea that we need to develop the capacity to receive the pack thought forms from the higher beings where they can give us a lot of information in a second. Mm -hmm. So again, that's non-verbal. Verbal is a lower level for us to be able to communicate it by breaking it down into bits, but mm -hmm. it's super slow mm -hmm. in comparison, mm -hmm. and it can be super frustrating to be mm -hmm. able to do that. People who are good speakers are good speakers because they've learned how to receive or to hold packed thought forms and to be able to bring it in a constant trail into the unpacking in the brain to form words, which then they can make some sense out of it to be able to convey to other people. That's actually what's happening behind the scenes. When someone was able to speak extemporaneously in a huh. in a eloquent manner, that would be you. Well, I appreciate that. I'm working on it. That's all I can ever <laughs> say are. is I'm working on it. You're so uh, good at it. Well, thank you. Mm -hmm. But I want people to understand the principle behind it. I mean, that's the whole idea of spiritual initiation. We're not just going to see the results of things. We want to understand the causes of things. We want to see what actually creates that thing. Mm -hmm. To understand the path. So, 
Let's look at another aspect. Now that we've talked about this as Rosicrucianism being originally an independent path and about developing your consciousness to be able to do things like directly perceive non-physical realities, mm -hmm. because that's the real initiators. Mm -hmm. You know, in some traditions, they just want to unify it into the one source behind everything. And so it's like God is the initiator. That's the one. That's the totality of everything. Mm -hmm. Other traditions will then go into the specific beings you're working with. Mm. Because usually when somebody says, and many people get upset with me when I say this, <clears throat> but this is my perspective. If somebody says, oh, God told me this or God told me that, it's like, well, God is the totality of all beings and all existence and all universes known and unknown. And he told you that in physical words. It's like, well, maybe. But my perspective is that, no, if you got that and it wasn't something you made up, you actually got it. There's another being at another level of existence you got it from. And so if you're going to deal with this in a brass tax manner, then I don't just like meet somebody on the street and somebody says, oh, where did you hear, you know, that this band is playing at this show? I don't say, oh, God told me because, mm -hmm. yeah, in a sense, right. God told me because right. God created that being. Right. But yeah, but if I say God told me that Iron Maiden is playing in Las Vegas next year, well, that's a little weird. But <laughs> As a specific individual that told me this, and there's uh -huh. usually specific individual beings that are communicating things to you. Uh -huh. Uh -huh. So that's another thing that's extremely important. That has to become like part of one's lived reality. But it has you can't even do it unless you're able to have such a such equanimity, such balance that being able to perceive non-physical realities doesn't throw you off your center. You know, you don't have what the Tibetans call grasping, which is like, oh, that's fascinating. I see this non-physical being or thing, and you try to grasp it. As soon as you did that, you'll corrupt it. You have to stay completely calm and just observe it. Mm -hmm. At the same time, you don't shrink away from it. You may receive things mm -hmm. about horrible things that happened to you in past incarnations. Mm -hmm. You may receive something about something horrible that's going to happen to you in this incarnation. Very mm -hmm. hard to have equanimity about that. Mm -hmm. But that's the only way to not corrupt what you perceive spiritually. Ah, oh, yeah. You've experienced it's experienced in meditation. I feel like, or even like a dream, feels like you do it, where you're trying to go back into it, and you're like, you're in a meditation, and you're like, oh, that's yes. cool, and you're like, you're <laughs> like, you start to realize something, and you're like, you try and look harder, essentially, and then it disappears, or like in the you wake up sort of, and you think that was a great dream, and I like, okay, what was I thinking about again? And then you can't get there again; it just disappears. It won't come to you, and it's in the surrender that you actually are now able to perceive there's no you've got to open instead of close and narrow that's that's what it feels like to me that i've had the experiences of that's abs i absolutely agree with you that's exactly how it works again to take a, a phrase from dr sagan at the clear vision school he would often say i thought this was a brilliant summary that your ability to perceive spiritually is governed by your ability to not react to what you see <laughs> yeah that is absolute core of everything. So, you know, in all types of personal development work, one of the first things we do in psychological self-help or personal development work is that we understand we have to get beyond the reactive mind. The reactive mind is your enemy. The reactive mind makes you a, a beast. It reduces you to the level of an animal functioning in the bad sense of that term. Mm. And you're not at a truly human stage. You're just an input-output mechanism. You're a machine. Mm -hmm. I can push this button with you and you're going to react this way because you're just so deeply programmed. You can't even see your programming. Right. 
And so we have to understand that we have to get past the reactive mind to do any of this. Otherwise, what people think they're seeing clairvoyantly is nothing other than the projection of their own mind substance and of their own weird crap. So this is another important part of the independent path of spiritual initiation, because there are various trials on the path. Whether you do it with a group and you give your power over to an external teacher, or you do it in the independent path, there's going to be what's known classically as trials, as challenges. And they have to be there. People to say, oh, I don't want to have to deal with those. Let's just get rid of them. That doesn't work that way. The only way that you develop the skill, that you develop the siddha, is by going through the trial and succeeding in it. And it will keep coming up until you can you can pass it. Often in multiple lifetimes, you'll keep getting these horrible experiences until finally you figure out how to get through it, and then you don't have to keep going through it anymore. Mm -hmm. It's like a grade of school that you got to get through. Mm -hmm. And so this whole idea that we need to be able to overcome certain challenges, one of the first challenges that you have on the path, and particularly this is true on the independent path, it's also true on the path of the organization, but very much on the independent path, is one of the very first challenges is ego inflation, that you think that you're way more advanced than you are, and you set up your own little spiritual group, and you're the guru, and you're the teacher, and you're perfect, and you know everything, and you got all this power, and this ego inflation happens very quickly on the path, and we see it everywhere in metaphysics today. You know, humility isn't Cancel just the group. That <laughs> <laughs> so you can be a you can be a teacher, you can have a group, but it's not a matter that you know you've reached some perfected state and give yourself right. you start giving yourself high titles yeah. and that type of thing rather than being yeah. Joe Blow. Then yeah. that's usually a sign that something's going on here. <clears throat> you start, and one of the things for the Rosicrucians to avoid this is that you're not allowed in Rosicrucianism. Now, again, we say, you know, being told what to do, what not to do. <clears throat> this is a suggestion. <laughs> on the independent path, you can do anything you want. But, you know, some things just don't make sense. Mm -hmm. You know, you could choose to be a heroin addict, but probably that won't make sense in the long run. And one thing that won't make sense and usually goes wrong in the long run is when people start talking publicly about their past incarnations. And so it's like, well, I was the great so-and-so, and I did this, and I did that. Mm -hmm. That usually attracts the wrong type of attention, and mm -hmm. it usually it usually goes bad. Everybody uh, was something great in past lives, of course. That's, and, Don't and that's believe me, ask them. Uh, exactly. Ask me. That's, I mean, I trust me. Uh, I mean, and yeah. it also leads to people getting all this ego attachment to who they were before. And again, I don't want to offend anybody, but I have literally met over a dozen reincarnations of Mary Magdalene. It's mm -hmm. like such a common thing today for people to think they are the reincarnation of Mary Magdalene, or that they were one of the disciples of Christ, or they were this or that. And here's here's a, a great marker for evaluating these experiences. If you actually were these people, like let's say a disciple of Christ or something like that, mm -hmm. your memory of it is often going to be a somatic memory of suffering. Mm -hmm. It's not going to be like, I'm so great, I'm so advanced, I'm mm -hmm. this amazing person, follow yeah. me, listen to me. Anytime people talk like that, it's nothing but dealing with their own core wounds and mm -hmm. compensating for inferiority complexes. Otherwise, you'd never do that crap. I mean, there's no reason <laughs> yeah. to do it. Uh, but the, for people experienced on that, the people that were disciples around Christ, they didn't have like some fantastic, I'm an elevated person thing. They were trudging 
around in the desert in sandals, barely with enough to eat or drink, and constantly under threat of torture and death. I mean, these were hard experiences. Mm -hmm. So when people have, you know, have, I was a great so-and-so, the people that were the great so-and-so, they know the suffering that came in that lifetime. They know the, the what they went through mm. to be able to do what they did at that time. Mm. And they also, it, they feel that's that what so it took to be remembered. That, that they, there's no, they don't want to talk about it publicly. It gets the wrong type of attention. People aren't going to understand it the way it actually was. It's going to be sensationalized and romanticized. And so, again, the challenge is ego inflation. And so there's suggestions in Rosicrucianism, like don't start talking about your past incarnations or that can go really wrong. Mm -hmm. But also just the whole idea that you're way more advanced than you actually are. You know, all you got to do is like, look at, look at your romantic relationships. And usually that'll bring you down hard and fast. No, I don't want to. I, mean, I had multiple therapists for a while. I feel like I kind of bridged the gap. I'm not saying it's gone, but let's not talk about it. <laughs> exactly. But that's the kind of thing that when you deal with family, when you deal with people in intimate relationships, they'll bring you down fast to the fact that you're not perfect and you haven't figured it all out yet. No. So, yeah. so this is another aspect of the thing of the independent path. There are certain trials and don't get caught up in, in the things like inflating your ego just because now you can mm -hmm. hear people's thoughts and okay. you can do these other things that other people can't do. Okay. It's almost always a mistake even to talk about it. I mean, most people are not going to take well. If you let them know like, oh yeah, I can hear your thoughts. Uh, most people, that's not going to work out well in most cases. Now you're not trying to do it. There are ways that there are esoteric methods you can use to penetrate into a person's head and to get the thoughts, but that's a type of invasion. Uh, but there's a natural method that just by clarifying your own thoughts, so you have a completely clear mind, you start hearing other people's thoughts just because you're quiet enough to hear them. People are broadcasting them like they're shouting all the freaking yes. time. That's all we're doing. That's why sensitive people have a hard time often being in like chaotic environments. Right. Because it's just right. like people are shouting mentally all the time. And it's like, right. plus you're feeling their weird energies. So, <laughs> so now let me talk about uh, uh, some other aspects on the path. There's yeah. also the idea in the Rosicrucian tradition that there's certain types of initiation maxims. Again, let's call them suggestions for ways to develop in a healthy way. One of them is to make the decision at the very beginning of the work that you do that all the spiritual powers and understanding that you gain on the path will be put to the service of other people. Mm -hmm. Not as an abstract thought, but as something so deep in your heart and your mm -hmm. gut that it's mm -hmm. a way of life. Mm -hmm. That you're going to put these things that you develop to the service of other people. It's for service. Mm -hmm. Now, this is one of the things that when you start seeing the group of beings that are behind, let's say, Buddhism, working with all the initiates of Buddhism, the group of beings behind Christianity, Christ, archangels, high saints, masters, etc., that you would be connected to, that as you go up, let's say, a level or two, you find that the beings behind Christianity and behind Buddhism start to get a lot of overlap. There's a tremendous amount of overlap between the beings behind Buddhism and Christianity, which have to do with teachings of compassion mm -hmm. and love and mm -hmm. non-revenge, mm -hmm. non-anger, things like this, things that have to do with developing beyond the animal reactive stage. Well, then we got to say that Taylor Swift is probably not one of those people. She talks about uh, vigilante shit and revenge and reputation. Yeah, yeah, not Taylor Swift. Got it. 
Well, one thing I always want to make sure to do is to leave the, the space of grace open for people. That, <laughs> that, but whenever, you know, I always, uh, whenever a celebrity, like we have a kind of thing where we like to, to like uh, build up celebrities and then we tear them down. And I think, oh, that's probably not a healthy way to it. So my whole thing is that even when celebrities are doing crazy things that are not not the great role model for for other people, because they're just people going through their lives too, mm. that in a karmic pathway, that could transform to something completely different. Yeah, that's true. And so you always just want to hold in your heart for somebody like, well, that anger is a natural human stage. Revenge is a natural stage of the path. And mm -hmm. so we see the stage that's being passed through right now, and you're making it visible. But I really hope you get to the next stage because you'll be a lot more comfortable when you get there. Oh, yeah. Exactly. That's the way I try to look at it. That's a nice way. That's a nice way to put some uh, frosting on a, on the top <laughs> of that and and be very positive. I like that. Yeah. Yeah. We always have to have compassion when people are acting out publicly. And it, it just shows that they're in a particular stage of an alchemical path. Got it. And yep. the later stages are on the way. And, and I really hope that you get to them sooner rather than later for your, relieving your own suffering. Because that's like one of the great gifts of the Buddhist thing is that when somebody hurts you, somebody does something terrible to you, somebody's not a good person and has really harmed you, the first thing you look at is how they're suffering, how they're acting out from their suffering, whether they don't, they may not even know they're suffering, but it's really a reaction to it. Yeah, yeah. And that's the way the Buddhists get a, get past anger. It's a, it's a beautiful system. Mm. And it's the exact same thing in Christianity, because this is related to what was the Christian initiation esoteric system before the Rosicrucians. Because before we had Rosicrucianism going public around the 1600s, mm -hmm. you had before that the Holy Grail tradition in mm -hmm. Christianity that began around the ninth century. And the text for that was the, the, the epic poem Parsifal. And in there, the, the Grail lesson, the Grail question, that Parsifal has to learn is to ask brother or sister, what ails thee? And so brother or sister, what ails thee is the exact same thing in as in Buddhism in asking how does the person suffer uh -huh, to get sure. past anger and to understand the person and see how you can help the person. Mm -hmm. And so that just shows you, again, an overlap of these traditions. Mm -hmm. Now, the point I want to make here then is that I consider myself to be an aspirant toward the Rosicrucian tradition, there's a. I always think of this this beautiful response that Bono from U2 gave in an interview many years ago, like in the 80s, <laughs> when he was being interviewed about being a Christian, and uh, you know he was talking a lot about that at the time. And somebody mm -hmm. says, "Do you consider yourself a Christian?" And Bono's response was, "I would hesitate to give myself that high a compliment." And that's the way I feel about Rosicrucianism. Somebody says, are you a Rosicrucian? I would hesitate to give myself that high a compliment. I aspire to it. I do my best with that. I try to share what I understand and have experienced with that with other people. But again, we have to be very careful of ego inflation. Yeah. People start saying, I am the representative of this tradition and blah, 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 blah. Because mm. ultimately, it's an ongoing process, I would it imagine. Is. There's actually not really an, there's not an end to it so to say you've arrived somewhere is completing it and there's really no completion it's like it's a it's a life practice of of a it's a life practice it really is and you can always fall back from a state as well 
Sure. In a free will universe, <clears throat> just because sure. you've attained something doesn't mean you're going to hold on to it. Now, you this is own, part. You can have your own entropy there. <laughs> that's right. That's why there's a very important concept here that I like to talk about. Mm. I don't see it specifically in Rosicrucianism, but I think it would belong to it in the sense that it's such a core spiritual principle, which is that we have certain stages of activity. And today, everybody talks about healing, mm -hmm. and everything is about healing. Mm -hmm. But it's often dealt with as a healing is like a goal in itself. And that's mm -hmm. not really the case. Healing is meant to make us whole. The term heal comes from the root whole. Mm. And so people get caught up in healing. And I found years ago that if I teach a class and I put the word healing in the title, <clears throat> I'll get three times the number of people if I don't, as if I don't put the word healing in the title. But it becomes like a thing where like constantly healing. And I'm not saying that's a bad thing. It's absolutely essential. Because we have to become whole enough to do what we came here to do. Mm -hmm. Because the, one of the things... So are you in, saying it's not healing? It's more of like illuminating or merging or... What you're pointing toward is that there's later stages. Healing is just stage one. But people aren't always clear what comes after the healing. It's just like, I'm, I'm always healing. I'm constantly healing. Mm -hmm. And yes, that's true. We are. But it, the fact that we're constantly focusing just on healing... Mm -hmm. It's like we're forgetting what healing is for. Why are we becoming whole? Why are we wanting to get all of our our mm -hmm. act together in the first place? Yeah. And because the whole spiritual path is around remembering who am I? Why am I here? And what did I choose to do in this incarnation? Because life is a limited time opportunity, an mm -hmm. extremely limited time opportunity for mm -hmm. us to achieve certain things in our spiritual development. Yeah. And so we have to keep our eyes on the prize. So yeah. after we get enough healing, we have to make sure that we don't just keep focusing. I'm going to do more healing and more healing and more healing. Yes, keep doing more healing. Keep finding new and better ways to heal. But start focusing the majority of your attention on what that's for. And so the next stage above that is activation. You need to activate your consciousness. You need to activate your heart forces. You need to activate your will. You need to activate your perception of who am I, why am I here, what did I incarnate to do? Mm -hmm. So, yes, healing is very, very important, but it's not the end in itself. You want to do that so you can activate. Inside of every person are latent powers, again, what they call siddhas in, mm -hmm. in India, that activate our consciousness, activate our heart forces, activate our will forces, bring online hidden powers and potentials and understandings and skills mm -hmm. that we all developed in previous lifetimes that may not be fully back yet in this lifetime and to activate things so we can generate brand new skills yeah, and things we've never had before yeah. to, to integrate into our core structure. Mm -hmm. But that's not the end in itself either because mm -hmm. many people will be able to get activations, particularly when they are assisted by things like there's a huge revolution in psychotropics now. And I'm right. doing a lot of work with the psychotropics community. And I'm, I'm a supporter of that. Mm -hmm. But again, we always have to have a uh, balanced perspective on it. And so it, it's very possible a person will have some type of trip or something and, and they'll get activated. But the question is, can you hold it in a way that serves your totality and preserves it going forward? Because it's possible to get all of these activations, but can you integrate it into your core structure so that you then stay at that level of development and then can add more to it? So there has to be stability to it. 
So that's why above activation is then stabilization. You have to stabilize the states. So one thing that I'm trying to get to understood in the psychotropic community is do some healing work sometimes on core things before you do massive amounts of the psychotropics, because Mm -hmm. then it's going to go a lot better when you do, if Mm -hmm. some of that stuff's already dealt with. Mm-hmm. Otherwise, it's just going to come up for you to process. And if you've taken a quantity of a substance that you're not riding the wave, but the wave is crashing on you like a hundred foot wave in, in Hawaii, then that yeah. might not be skillful action yeah. in the way to, to do this. It might be a better way to go about it. Right. But once you've got the activated state, don't just assume, oh, I'm going to be enlightened for the rest of my life. It's You have to find a way to stabilize it. Mm. And this is this is a literal thing. It has to be stabilized in the energy body. It has to be stabilized okay. in the structures of the subtle body. Stabilizing the structures in the subtle body is something that's not hardly discussed at all today. Yeah, you're but, this is new. I'm very curious what you mean by this. And like as as an example, what would that what would be needed to do that? So a, a very simple example of it is every time that you use your mind in a certain way, you are structuring the energy patterns in your head in a very specific geometry, in a very mm-hmm. specific shape. Mm-hmm. You're activating certain parts of the brain and you're sedating other parts of the brain. Mm-hmm. You're activating release of certain types of neurochemicals based on the, the quality of what you're thinking and you're doing and other types of stress chemicals in the body, etc. It all becomes a pattern that has a geometric form to it in your body of what things are activated and what's deactivated. Same thing with the heart. You find some people have massively expanded heart energy. Other people have almost none. Why? Because of the way that they've been using their heart energy, Mm. the attention they're giving to it. Anybody can change that at any time. But we need to be aware that one of the sayings is thoughts are things. Mm -hmm. And we need to be aware that every thought that you have, every feeling and emotion you have, every action you take, they are all causes set in motion. They Mm -hmm. all have an energetic basis to them. They will all activate certain things in your body of energy. And when you do it over time, that will then create a pattern in the energy body that then becomes your state, your mental state, your emotional state, your ability to take action in a destructive or a beneficial way. Biological state. Exactly. But I mean, we could actually see this. So when a clairvoyant perceives someone's energy field, they can see, oh, this person has a very activated third eye center but the Mm -hmm. center above it may not be as activated. So they're capable of some things here, but they're not capable of what these things do. And maybe their their heart is suppressed. That may be leading, if you go back to the healing level, it might go back to the fact that now they have heart problems because the way they've been using their emotions is actually destroying the function, biological function of the heart because it's a cause set in motion and it is creating an energy vibrational broadcast that's actually harming their physical heart in addition to not having a stable structure to the to the whole energy body. So anyway, this is something that we rarely hear about today. It's extremely important, something that Dr. Sagan emphasized a lot of the Clear Vision School, but really is a classical understanding. What is the structure of our subtle bodies? And we need to activate it to higher levels so that our mind, our heart, our will centers, the three primary centers of the energy body are all activated and working together in an optimal way and that we can stabilize that so that we can hold that. So that, you know, when we use psychotropic substances, things of that kind, it introduces us to a state. And just like in neuro-linguistic programming, 
can we entrain to that state to be able to hold it mm-hmm. without having to continue doing the substance every week or something? Now, you may need to do it on a particular basis until the pattern gets set. But again, what we're trying to do is we're trying to integrate this right. and we're trying to, to hold it norm. for, yeah, try to hold it over a longer period of time. Mm-hmm. Now, if I can segue into another topic with yeah. the, the time we have, there's another very yeah. important thing I want to make people aware of that's not often discussed with Rosicrucianism. And that's to, to understand that Rosicrucianism is the current manifestation of an ancient tradition, which took other forms in earlier times. Just as we take on different forms in different lifetimes, I may have looked very different and acted quite differently 3,000 years ago in Egypt than I do today. You know, we take different forms based on the culture and on whatever it is that we and humanity as a whole is working to crystallize at this particular time. If the Rosicrucian tradition came on in the early 1600s, what was it before then? Well, before then, it connected to what was called the Holy Grail tradition in Mm -hmm. Europe. Mm -hmm. And at that time, people incarnated in the south of France and were part of the Bogomils, Albigensians, the Cathars, all these things that were murdered, all these groups, Holy Grail groups that were murdered by the Pope's armies Mm. and were part of this whole uh, Mary lineage in the south of France that we often hear about today. But it even started even before that with what happened around the court of Charlemagne, with the beginning of the Holy Grail tradition, the writing of the Epic Forum Parsible. It was a way to crystallize the new form of spiritual initiation for the forms that people could understand in their current culture and with an understanding of the initiation trials they have to get through right now. Because we may have gone through different initiation trials in uh, back at the time of ancient Egypt or things of that kind. You're struggling with something else. It's a different point in history. So you might need something else as a way to deal with life. And Yes, it's it's essentially a consecutive series of uh, stages in an alchemical process. Mm, oh. So oh. as we keep moving through this alchemical process, for a lot of people, we go back to Egypt. Mm. So I, I meet so many people today who have a resonance with ancient Egypt, who often remember being in ancient Egypt and have often connections between each other from ancient Mm -hmm. Egypt. Now, this is the foundation of then of what we called the hermetic tradition. And the hermetic tradition, we should be aware, is something that opens you up to working with every source of knowledge, every tradition. That's what hermeticism is, that you take spiritual wisdom from every place it comes from. And as an independent act, as as your own authority, you're able to synthesize it into, these are broken fragments of a complete teaching. This tradition got this part. This tradition got this part. We can bring it back together. And now we have the picture of what the exact reality of spiritual reality and physical reality and their connections are. So that's something that we in our current understanding we take back to ancient Egypt with the Hermetic tradition. But that also became a foundation for the Rosicrucian independent path that I'm talking about right now. That's been worked on for a long time. It didn't just happen. Mm-hmm. We'd worked on it for a long time. In ancient Egypt, we didn't follow a purely independent path. There were aspects of it. We were we were being trained for it to come at a later time. But mm-hmm. we were part of a temple. Mm-hmm. And you were, got trained in the temple, and there was a very hierarchical structure. 
mm-hmm. things of that kind, because that's the way this, that the society at the time and our stage of alchemical development could do the process most effectively. Hmm. Even then, some of the most active and enlightened people like Pythagoras could like go and train in Egypt and train in Babylon and do this kind of thing. You know, they could still, it still was possible, but it wasn't the mass movement that it is today. Wow. So we are an ongoing process. So we have been building on this practice since. Absolutely. And again, it took different forms. If we try to initiate someone in the Egyptian style today with all of their cultural conditions, uh, most people in modern culture wouldn't even understand what we're talking about Mm -hmm. because we don't have the same cultural references. And we're not necessarily in the same stage of, of evolutionary development, okay. the same alchemical stage. Okay. Now, we can learn a lot from it. Obviously, with my teaching biogeometry and my how grad, much great gratitude I have for working with Dr. Kareem, etc., biogeometry is incredibly important. Yeah. But let's be clear, Dr. Kareem is bringing this rediscovered knowledge that he was able to find through his research uh, from ancient Egypt into a modern cultural context. And a modern format for what we have to deal with right now, like electromagnetic fields. They didn't have to deal with that right. 5,000 years ago in Egypt. So it, we have to, have to always see it in context. So there's a sacred geometry of space. And that's what people tend to think of when we say sacred geometry, like platonic solids and things you see in like psychedelic imagery and these types of things. But there's also a sacred geometry of time. So we have to see the pattern in time, both in our own lifetimes to understand who am I, why am I here? But we also have to understand the sacred geometry of time when it comes to things like spiritual traditions, which we may be associated with in different lifetimes, and the whole evolution of humanity through these traditions. So there's a certain thread here that if you read the original teachings of the Greeks who went to study in Egypt and came back, like in the Pythagorean Mm -hmm. school, like the writings of Plato, says very directly that the Greeks like Solon in the writings of Plato, where they talk to the Egyptian priest, they said, all of our knowledge came from Atlantis. Now, today, Atlantis is considered to be some type of new age, hoo-hoo, fantasy, whatever. They're ignoring the fact it comes from historical documents that are thousands of years old of what the Egyptian priests themselves told their initiates. That's where the whole word comes from. And so really, we would have to go back to the Atlantean times to understand this trajectory. There is an understanding of some times before that, that according to the secret doctrine teachings of people like Blavatsky and the Theosophists, they have certain names, very mm-hmm. ancient times of the Polarian Epoch, the Hyperborean, etc. Fascinating stuff, but way too complex to get into here. Conditions of form that we had were very different then. But Atlantean, we, we can still sometimes go back to that to understand it. So the Atlantean going forward to the Egyptian, many of us having very formative experiences in Egypt. And there's the hidden sacred geometry of time that in what's referred to in Rosicrucianism as the post-Atlantean time period, which is our current epoch, the post-Atlantean epoch, everything since Atlantis. Oh, we're in that now? That's what we're in now. That's a long period of time. And in the sacred geometry of time, it's divided into seven sections. The number seven is part of a rhythm that governs time. Mm. And so you know, there's the first stage after that, and this is according to the Rosicrucian tradition. First stage after that was the ancient Indian Vedic tradition. Mm-hmm. Like literally the time of the Vedas was a founding in India of people that left Atlantis at the time of the destruction, okay. the, the founding of the, the civilization in the Indus Valley. And then that moved to the second period, which was the Persian Zoroastrian period, 
it was at that time that they began to perceive certain things spiritually that had not been clearly perceived before. And this is where the religion of light in Persia. Then the third epoch was the Egyptian Chaldean Babylonian, and that was the Egyptian epoch. Then the next is the Greco-Roman epoch. That's the fourth period. And at that point, you know, the Romans conquered the known world sort of thing, and they developed the foundations for modern science, etc. Then we move into the current epoch, which is referred to as the European epoch mm-hmm. in the Rosicrucian tradition. And we can see that Europe became the dominant force in mm-hmm. that epoch. And then the next one is going to be the Eastern European epoch. The Eastern European peoples will bring in new impulses the way that these other people brought in new impulses culturally mm-hmm. before. And we're not and there yet. We're not in the Eastern European epoch yet. We're not there yet, but it's being formed. If you okay. observe certain things happening in Eastern Europe, it's the, it's preparing for when that's going to become a dominant. And when force. we did this, we in, when I interviewed you before, you gave the menorah as sort of like a connection of time. So is that exactly that what so, you're alluding to with this Rosicrucian teaching of time? Exactly, because okay. if you understand that that we have these seven periods, mm-hmm. then. Uh, the menorah that we described last time wanted to bring it into context with what we're describing right now so mm-hmm. we can understand where the Rosicrucianism came mm-hmm. from. It came through the evolution of these traditions. Mm. But we also have the aspect of it that the menorah is the, the original form, like what they you see in the arts of Titus in Rome, where they stole the menorah from the Temple of Solomon uh, around 70 AD with the Jewish revolt and the Romans putting it down. That you know, the menorah they had in the Temple of Solomon, it had a uh, straight line coming down, support staff at the fourth place, where you put the fourth candle. That's a Greco-Roman epoch when you see it in sacred geometric structure. The third and the fifth are connected in an arc. Mm -hmm. The second and the sixth and the first Mm -hmm. and the seventh. Mm -hmm. So the third epoch is the Egyptian epoch. The fifth epoch is our current European. Mm -hmm. So the reason why many of us that had that incarnation at that time are so focused on ancient Egypt, and I believe also another hidden reason why Dr. Karim is doing this unbelievable work releasing what had never been made public before about some of the inner knowledge of the ancient Egyptian temples within Mm -hmm. biogeometry work has to do with the fact that we are working with those impulses from the old Egyptian time in a way that is mirror imaged it's reversed. That fourth place is like a, a mirror. And all the earlier periods get reversed or mirror image in going the opposite direction that we went through before. And so there's a lot of things now that we're working with what we developed in the Egyptian epoch, and we're now transforming it, the essence of that, those powers, those abilities, that essence into something that's at a higher level at this mm. current stage. Okay. So. This then brings together a a type of movement in the traditions I just talked about, but also many people find in their incarnations that they'll find there's this Atlantean to Egypt Mm -hmm. to then for quite a few people that then led into working with the Essenes Mm -hmm. uh, in the Jewish tradition when the Jews left Egypt because Moses was an initiate of the Egyptian temple. And there's a direct evolution of that knowledge into the Jewish Kabbalah. Much of it came from the Egyptian temple, then it changed form for a different different culture. 
And so there's some incredible stuff that happened in the Essenes. That's another discussion. And then from there, it moves into uh, the Christian tradition into Europe, and but then developed with aspects of uh, contemporaneous with the Essenes was the Greek knowledge and how that developed. And then developing in Europe with Christianity, everything from the early Christian centuries, which was really fomenting in Alexandria, Egypt. Uh, and that's where the early Christian writings that are the most advanced, like those coming from Origen in Alexandria, Egypt in the third century, books like On First Principles. They're mind-blowing books. Most Christians don't even know anything about these books, but it's the real metaphysical basis of the whole thing. Mm -hmm. And then it came into Europe, became the Holy Grail tradition, became the Rosicrucian tradition. And so I wanted to make sure that as we had this discussion today, I could I could show this. And some people will find in their own karmic biography as they remember things like, oh, this is the, the pearls on the thread mm -hmm. for, for these two incarnations. But at the same time, there's a lot of richness in this uh, extract. Right. But there's also an aspect that that doesn't mean that there weren't also incarnations in other parts of the world. So many people that have an innate resonance with the Rosicrucian tradition will have memories of incarnations in Eastern traditions, in India, China, many other cultures, because there's a, a tremendous amount of knowledge there. And that shows that they're a part of the Hermetic tradition. They're a part of being able to access spiritual knowledge from all sources. And because in the deeper hidden aspects of the Rosicrucian tradition, this is related to the direct impulse coming from Archangel Mikael. Mm. Archangel Mikael is known to the Rosicrucians as the regent of the cosmic intelligence, mm. and also known as the cosmopolitan spirit. What that means is that... He sounds Arch cool. <laughs> yes. Archangel Mikael is the being that understands the original gnosis how all the original knowledge that got broken up and distributed in the different traditions of the world mm. comes back into a unified spiritual science. Mm -hmm. And that's why at the beginning of the current age of Mikael, beginning in 1879, in the reign of the seven archangelic ages, a whole nother sacred geometry of time subject, we are living currently in the age of Mikael. That's why Rudolf Steiner, as a very advanced Rosicrucian initiate, began to teach publicly around the year 1900 and released extremely advanced Rosicrucian knowledge that had been kept very secret before, and why we're getting this huge explosion now at the turn of the last century of the release of previously hidden information from so many traditions, mm -hmm. because it's the Michaelic impulse to put back together the complete gnosis or the complete modern spiritual science. And to be honest, to do my little part toward that, that's why I'm here and why I created the Vesica Institute okay. to do my best to save people time and energy to pull together key pieces mm -hmm. from different bodies of work that would help to make coherent enough the practices, principles, et cetera, from multiple directions to give them the context where they could follow an independent path of initiation right. and make informed choices about what practices and directions they want to go once they start to remember, who am I, why am I here, that are going to help them to actualize their potential and fulfill that path. It's not a matter of developing the way that I've developed. It's not a matter of going to my particular trajectory. 
It's a matter of getting the pieces that you need that's going to get you to your place. I, I thought it would end up being like, here's the level one, here's the level two, these are the courses. But there's so much more um, fundamental integrity to the reason for the practice. It's a way of being. It's rooted in so much integrity as to why you would go down this path. And and, and it's uh, and it's a unique experience for each person to some degree. So there's not it's not so obvious to just lay it out. But if you could sort of bring this together to why would someone why would someone practice this why would someone go into the rosicrucian teachings and try and learn about it like what is the goal the fundamental reason for someone to listen to this and go ah that makes sense because until we remember who we are why we're here what we chose to do in this lifetime we are amnesiacs who are wandering lost in the world, not knowing who we are or why we're here, and not using the precious moments that are ticking away in this lifetime for the essential work that we must do to develop spiritually along this path. And we will get caught in the path of unskillful action and unnecessary suffering until we take the path of skillful action and begin to work with this consciously and begin to remember who we are and take in our own hands the reins of our spiritual development. So it really is a choice between suffering or spiritual development. You can develop through the path of the school of hard knocks much longer, much harder, if that's your choice to not wake up and continue to be an amnesiac. Or you can take the path of skillful action and not only help yourself through that, but it will, for the first time, bring on your full capacity to help other people around you, mm. which is really that whole moral core of mm. spiritual development, particularly in the Christian and Buddhist traditions. Mm -hmm. you know, the more that we develop ourselves, the more we can relieve the suffering of others as well as our own suffering. Mm -hmm. And then what kind of world do we live in? Do we live, is it that our own world changes? Is that we internally have a different world? So the way we perceive everything around us changes. So essentially the world does change. Or is it because the world itself actually does change as a result of all of us participating in the base frequency and, and, and awareness that we all have as human beings to something more? You stated it wonderfully. And as, as is so often the case with these deep, profound questions, it's usually not an either or, it's a both and. <laughs> and so it will totally transform our own lives and our own experience of our lives to something much more pleasurable, much more exciting, mm -hmm. much more rich by mm -hmm. following this type of path of development. But also when it can reach a critical mass, yeah. it does transform the world. We need to take very seriously today that the way that people lived before the founding of the American experiment and the writing of the Declaration of Independence and the Constitution was very much subject to the whims of rulers in like grotesque systems of governance around the world forever. Now, this has been horribly perverted in, in modern times. There's no doubt for that. But we have to see that what people pulled off in the 1700s in creating a self-governing constitutional system, as imperfect as it was, has created possibilities for us in our current lifetime that are incredible. So we've done it before. We've changed the world system before. And we can and will do it again. 
And seen from a metaphysical perspective, this has been foreseen for a tremendous period of time. And it's what's always been referred to as creating the new golden age. Mm -hmm. So to go back to biogeometry, in biogeometry, when we find what is a vibrational signal that actually indicates the connection to the divine plane, Mm -hmm. uh, not as a metaphor, but as something very real, that then creates a vibrational emanation as an energy field on the physical plane that's connected to that universal harmonizing force that we tap into in the biogeometry work, that mm-hmm. one of the signals or markers of that energy is literally what we call the higher harmonic of gold. When we connect to the divine, when we connect to this universal harmonizing energy as something very real, not metaphoric, we create this gold radiance. The gold radiance you see around the heads and the bodies of the saints and the So this is where people talk about the alchemy and like turning things to gold. What we're doing with this work is transforming our own energy field into gold and then together reaching a critical mass to transform the world we live in into the new golden age. It's actually quite a literal description of what we have as our task in front of us. If we can pull it off, then we've passed through this alchemical stage and we've graduated to the next level. If we fail, which is a very real possibility, then we're going to have to go through quite a lot of unnecessary suffering. Do we have to go backwards to go forwards again then? Or does it just take longer? Uh, It will take longer, but we will go backwards because what happens when civilizations fail is that they collapse and people start living like cavemen rather than in a modern technological culture. So there's a certain movement backwards that is not inevitable, doesn't have to happen. But again, whether we reach the new golden age or we we descend into a new dark age is all dependent upon how many people wake up and transform our own lives. And then we can join together with this work. And there's a lot of good signs. There's a lot of terrible signs today, too. But there's a lot of good signs today with what's happening with people waking up, moving forward and wanting to improve the conditions that we're in. If we can keep things like social media and free exchange of ideas, opinions, etc., free and not curtailed by governments mm-hmm. the way that they always choose mm-hmm. to do, we have a very good chance. Mm-hmm. The hallmark of the fact that we're going down the wrong path is when governments are, are going to really crack down on the free exchange of ideas and communication. Good to know. I was going to ask you if there's any, I I, I, I I was imagining that I would have, there would you be able to be able to change the weather and manipulate objects and energy and whatever else. But I don't know if that, that really matters to even ask. That seemed like part of the. I think that's a very, I think it's a very mature response to that because uh, all that is possible. I have seen people very advanced who can change the weather and did change the weather in front of me. It's very mm-hmm. possible. Mm-hmm. But if they have any sense, they never do it publicly and they never talk about it publicly. Mm-hmm. It will lead to the worst type of attention and the worst type of people trying to tap into that power mm-hmm. for the wrong reasons. Right. So all this happens naturally as a development of siddhas, of powers, mm-hmm. as a person develops along the path. But mm-hmm. it's not the goal. Right. It's what happens as a natural consequence of the expansion of consciousness and energy. Okay. Thank you for getting my ego in check today. <laughs> I well, really... we, we all have to do that all the time. Yes. I really appreciate it. I um 
Thank you. I feel like we could do like Danica and Robert, the 20 part series. Yay. For now, we'll just do interviews whenever you say yes. That sounds um, great. I'd love to. But I yes. loved that very, very deep and wide explanation from like the real roots of Rosicrucian and um, also what we talked about, about biogeometry and stem cells and all the fun stuff. And yes, um, there's just so much in this for us to chew on and get us ready for the golden age. Absolutely. I so Hopefully. appreciate you having me on the program. I always love talking with you because you have the power of active listening. Mm -hmm. And that's that's absolutely vital to be able to pull out the, the deeper information. I very much appreciate you. Oh, gosh. Well, thank you so much, Robert. You're just a wealth of knowledge, and I'm grateful for your time. Thank you. Great. Thank you so much. Thanks, everybody, for listening to the Pretty Intense podcast today. I hope you enjoyed it. If you like what you heard today and you want to hear more, please click on the subscribe button.